Welcome to the Heart of the Piano podcast. Uh, I'm really excited. I've got Karen Bulmer uh, here. Um, I've been really looking forward to this one. Hi, Karen. Hi, Bob. It's great to talk to you. <laughs> you too, you too. And uh, so Karen runs the Music, Mind and Movement podcast, which I've really, really been enjoying. It, it, it covers all of the kind of good stuff that, that I like to, to go into to do with mindfulness, uh, especially mindfulness. I'm, I'm hoping to chat with you about some of your professional expertise with movement. Movement something that I'm not so, so aware of. So you have already made quite a, a long uh, episode about your background on your own podcast. I will put that in the show notes. So sure. um, instead of going through the, the whole kind of biography, can you give us a brief taster to, of, of your background <laughs> and then people who are interested can go on that episode? Sure, yeah. Um, well, I'm a tuba player. That's sort of my musical specialty. So I started playing tuba in high school. I switched from the flute, actually. And... Um, yeah, I kind of got into the tuba when I decided it would be easier to, I thought, I thought it'd be less competitive, let's put it mm. that way, to get into music school. So um, I studied tuba in university and sort of went all the way through. I got, I got really, really into the whole process of um, practicing and performing. And um, I hadn't really studied seriously until I got into university. And so just, you know, seeing myself put in the work and get better and better. Um, I just loved it. So I went all the way through. I did my master's and eventually my doctorate and um, freelanced for several years in Toronto, Canada. And then eventually, about 13 years ago now, I moved to the far east coast of of Canada um, to St. John's, Newfoundland, where I teach at the School of Music at Memorial University. And um, yeah, so that's kind of the professional side of things. That implies there's a different side of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I guess um, I'm sort of, uh, yeah, I mean, I somewhere along the line, you know, I really developed severe performance anxiety. So when I first got into playing tuba really seriously, I was, like I mentioned a moment ago, I was just really, really into it. Um mm. I just loved the process. I just found it so exciting and engaging. Um, but there was also, that this has been a part of my personality since I was really, really young, that I've always been a bit of a perfectionist and really craved external approval and have always been very concerned about how I'm, I'm viewed by others and, and really wanting to appear competent and successful and all these things. And so sort of over the course of my training, um, I really started um, really developing severe, not just performance anxiety, but also practice anxiety. And, and I think this is the case for many people is we're really, really anxious in the practice room. And then it shouldn't be a huge surprise <laughs> when we go mm. out on stage and then that is really <laughs> exacerbated. So um, yeah, I mean, I guess this is still the professional side, but this is sort of this other part of my work now besides playing tuba is 
kind of investigating how certain mind-body practices, including meditation and mm. movement. And I do also a lot of work with um, just sort of understanding the autonomic nervous system and, and being able to regulate it kind of in real time um, yes. can help musicians deal with these things. Yes. Oh, my God, there's like about at least 20 different things. <laughs> um, I had a, a very rough plan, and that's, that's now completely out of the window. Yeah, I, I, I was looking at um, some of the, uh, the show notes from your podcast. Yeah. And um, on your particular one, you were talking about how when you are practicing, there's a quote here, uh, about being able to feel and control the flow of attention um, helps make practice more efficient and less fraught. And uh, I, I think that was sort of, uh, that was some of what you were saying just then. I, I'm such a huge believer in being able to feel and control the flow of attention. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, uh, in a bit more depth, about being able to feel and control the flow of attention when practicing? Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I think one of the things that, that has been really helpful to me, and, and certainly something that... Um, meditation and mindfulness practice have helped with is being able to sort of sense where my attention is. So so sort of like direct it to this or that and also be able to sense is my attention really narrow or is it more broad? And yeah. what is mm. what is going to be most helpful in this moment? Because I think often we have this idea that attention or focus is kind of like you put your attention somewhere and you park it. <laughs> and yes. and then mm. and and like having good attention means you can keep your attention parked mm. you know indefinitely mm. and and I actually don't think that's a really useful way of thinking about attention for musicians that we really mm. need to be able to have an attention uh, that's very agile very flexible that can be broad that can be narrow that can that can be narrow but narrow on one thing and then then quickly move to something else and then broaden out and then back to narrow. So in, we need this agility and flexibility in, in our attention. So that's one aspect of it is learning how to feel what those different types of attention feel like to be able to mm. move between them. Mm. And and then also to sort of be able to know what's going to be helpful in the moment. So in in some sometimes when I'm playing along, it's really, really important for me to be able to like I know to execute this passage, I need to have a very narrow focus on maybe a particular aspect of my technique. But once that moment has gone by, then it's probably very helpful for me to um, broaden my attention back. That's out, that's an interesting one. When when is it useful? Like, can you can you name a sort of a specific moment in a specific piece where you find that a narrow focus on technique is is helpful in in performing, presumably? Yeah, sometimes I find to, um, for myself, so I don't want to be prescriptive at all. And so like, this is describing what's helpful for me currently. So of course, mm. we're always developing as musicians. So this might change. But so for example, sometimes if I need to go up into the high register on the tuba, mm. it's really helpful for me to really kind of to really hear the sound that I, I want to make, but also feel how my embouchure kind of um, activates mm. in order to um, to kind of get the right level of, I mean, I don't want to get like super <laughs> nerdy on tuba No, no, tech, no, please but, don't get nerdy. I'm, I'm but all it's about really, nerdy. 
Yeah, it's helpful for me to um, to just really, you know, really think about dialing in my embouchure and really feel that dial in um, for, so mm. I can get these really precise high notes. But then once that has happened, then it's nice to sort of go back to maybe a broader attention. Um, right. Or right. sometimes, you know, if I'm fingering like a, a, a quick passage or something, you know, the tuba has these really big valves. <laughs> like yes. It's quite a... Um, it's a lot of movement for the hand. And so sometimes it can be helpful to sort of think about the specific coordination. Um, but then mm. it, then it's nice to not think about that. Yes. Now, now I, I, I was interested in that because I think that what a lot of people uh, would do in a similar situation who are uh, a little less skilled in, in being able to use attention, when you said that, that you you kind of focus in on a specific technical thing. I think that what most people would do is they would actually have this narrow focus on, right, I must hit this high note, and they just think about just the note. But I loved what, what you said when you were uh, saying how you focus on it. You you focus on the sound and then the kind of the physical things to do with it. And to, to my mind, that's that's way less kind of narrow focus than, than other people would do it who just have a sense of panic, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and I think it's it's um, so. This is sort of related to to another aspect of attention that I I I think is really important in being able to control attention is is being able to understand the difference and be able to understand's not even really it. It's to be able to feel the difference between um, kind of having an embodied attention on what you're doing mm. um, and and kind of thinking about what you're doing, which actually often is really about thinking about you doing what you're doing. So it's kind of getting wrapped up in in your own um, sort of self-protection and, and ego and stuff like this. So I think, yeah, a lot of people, when they go mm. to play something difficult, and um, certainly this was the case for me every time I played anything difficult for a really long time, is is that it, it becomes like a set of instructions. Mm. Um or a set of, uh, yeah, this sort of panic, like, oh, I hope I don't miss it, or <laughs> I hope I get it. It's this, it's sort of like th- kind of thinking about or around what's going to happen as opposed to a really strong embodied sense of, you know, yes. this is this is what I need to do. This is what it feels like to execute this with ease and efficiency. Mm. So presumably, because we're all human, you still find yourself in performance situations where you where you have that sort of disembodied self-aware, the, the thing you were describing that's not so helpful. What are your tactics for pulling yourself out of that and becoming embodied? Yeah, that's, that's such a great question. And it, it's <laughs> really an ongoing, um, it's really an ongoing process. But mm. what I find extremely helpful is to to get back into my body so that I can, I can, feel myself from the inside out and mm. and sort of connect to my environment through the senses so um you know what i find often you know when i play tuba i sit so often just feeling the chair underneath my sitting bones and mm. feeling my feet on the floor feeling the weight of the instrument in my arms um i find mm. sort of broadening out my vision so i've got this kind of panoramic awareness of my surroundings um opening my ears up well often my ears will just automatically open up when i when i open my vision up 
So just that sense of of getting back into the environment and into the situation in my body, I find tends to um, tends to kind of shut off that more sort of self objectification, that sort of looking at myself from the outside yes. yeah. in. It's really hard to do both at the same time. I think. Yeah. I think that's quite an interesting one because uh, you know I like to nerd out on all of the research uh, and stuff, and there's so much that can help us musicians from the world of sports psychology. Now, mm-hmm. one of the sort of the, the really obvious things from sports psychology is that they emphasise an external focus of attention rather than an yeah. internal one. I think that's that's a really tricky one for musicians because it isn't so much of what we do internal. So it was interesting because so much of what you were describing there is like an internal focus, which sports psychology kind of tells you not to do. Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think about this a lot, actually. <laughs> mm. um, and I, what I've kind of observed is that I think often what we... Like if you look at some of the literature on external focus of attention in sports, often the external cue versus the internal cue, they they won't be as different as I think we often will think about it in music. So, Mm -hmm. for example, I was trained in in a sort of style of brass pedagogy where where the instructions were to, you know, we, we were meant to have really good movement of the air. So this is a real priority is to make sure we are taking in enough air and we are moving the air out of our bodies with ease and efficiency. Um, but then to just think about the sound we want to create. So extreme mm-hmm. external focus. Just sing what we want to create in our heads in as detailed a way as possible and that, that this would cause our body to create that product as efficiently as possible yes um and to not think about how it felt to play um Mm. and so you know you know so you'll like a a study that i've seen cited before is one about you know athletes jumping you know doing a sort of a two-foot takeoff doing a jump yeah. And the two focus cues, the internal focus was something like, you know, think about your leg muscles contracting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the external focus cue, though, was imagine your feet pressing into the ground. Mm. So it's still, you're still, there's still some sort of sensory, um, some sort of sensory component of the external cue. So so I think like to parallel it to something that would be more along the lines of my training as a brass player, the external cue would have been imagine yourself high up in the air. Am I making sense here? You, you totally are. You totally <laughs> so, are. So yeah, so I guess what, what I think is um, there are different, you know, internal and external focus of attention, it's not a binary, it's more of a spectrum. Mm, mm. And so, you know, when I think about engaging with my, you know, getting back into my body by engaging, you know, through my senses, mm. I, I don't think of that as completely internal, you know, it's I, I'm, I'm really, I'm really trying to open up to my environment and to my contact with the environment. Yes. Um, if that makes sense. And yes. and yeah, there's definitely an internal an internal component as well. Yes. Yeah, I, I really believe that, uh, you know, from my own experience as, as a musician, I think that it's possible 
to have both an external and an internal awareness at the same time as you as you're performing but when you look at all of the literature and you look at all of the research this doesn't seem to fit their model (laughs) (laughs) well one thing that I have definitely that I that you know I I, I'm not so deeply um, conversant in this literature so I just want to I just want to be clear about that but um, I think one thing that I have seen come up again and again is that for skills at which we're less proficient, an internal focus is often necessary. Mm. That when we're at the novice stage of learning something, we often really need to think about what's hap- what's going on inside and what our muscles are doing and what particular parts of our body are doing. Um, yeah. And then ideally we want to kind of then make that more automatic so that we can then turn it over to an external focus. And And I think mm. the thing is, as a musician... You know, when I get up on on stage to perform, not all aspects of my musicianship and my technique are at the same level. So there's some things I can do with with a lot of ease, and they feel very automatic to me. And there's there's some things that even as a you know a fairly seasoned player are challenges for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are areas of my technique that are less fluid. And so I think that's important to consider as well, that, that some t- we may need to alter the type of focus we're using depending on the exact skill that the moment requires. Yeah, that's uh, very interesting. But, but I think that when, when a lot of people hear that, they might think, yes, and at this moment, I have to concentrate like really hard on uh, in a way that just immediately causes tension. And, right. and I think that <laughs> so, yeah. so I, I caution people who are listening to to sort of not then think, right, this bit, I've got to think really hard about my technique because I don't think that's quite right. what you're saying. No. If, if you know, yeah. No. And again, I think I'm, when I t- think about thinking about my technique, again, it's it's in that, it's in that sort of embodied yes. way of, of having a sense of, of you know, if I want this to come out the way that I want it to sound, that I know it, I want it to feel this particular way, um, it's not a lot mm. of instructions and a lot of sort of fighting, ideally. Yes. Now, I, I really do think that uh, the essence of being a, a skillful, natural musician is where the majority of your attention is placed on sound, but, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in a mindful, primary sense kind of way, combined with the feeling that is associated in the body with that sound. And um, I, I think in many ways that's so profound and that I, I think pedagogically people don't really focus on that. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Or I think sometimes <laughs> it's not articulated in that way. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say. Mm. Well, let's go back to, uh, I think, where I was going to roughly, uh, uh, my rough plan for the podcast right. was to start, because <laughs> I just got so distracted by all the, the thousands of interesting <laughs> topics that came up. Um, my sort of um, introduction, um, my, the, the thing that pulled me into a way of teaching and the way of thinking about music making that was other than sort of the way that everybody else does it, is when I started noticing... Uh, well, actually, it came about because I started going to to piano meetup groups mm-hmm. where you just got to see like three hours worth of, of amateur pianists all just playing one after the other. And 
because they're not your students and you're only playing for a tiny bit of that, you get to sort of start watching it with a, um, uh, with a sort of a different eye than, than when they're your students. And then I started noticing all these things that they're like, how have I never noticed this before with my students? And, and one of the most absolutely obvious things that I was just noticing immediately is that the people who were playing less naturally and the people who just were having more difficulties and not flowing had this intense, narrow focus on everything. And mm -hmm. the, the focus, it's not just with the eyes, although you can see it in the quality of the eyes immediately. There's like a, a steely, intense uh, gaze from the eyes with, with all the eye muscles really tense. But I was yeah. noticing that it was really tied in with posture. And mm. the, the neck goes forwards and the shoulders go forwards and the back is rounded. And, and, I, and I just saw straight away this, this strong link between posture and focus and also lack of movement and when mm -hmm. people move more they lose that kind of narrow focus um, and so I was just fascinated by this and um, well actually all, all the things that, that you talk about on your uh, music mind and movement podcast for years I was I was sort of discovering um, all these things that, that all your guests are talking about mm -hmm. trying to research them on the internet and finding nobody and I just thought am I the only person doing all this stuff <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then and then I saw your podcast and it's like oh my god all these people are doing all the same stuff because <laughs> um, because you know this led me down a, a really deep path of, of so many different techniques and uh, yeah. um have you what 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 have you explored in terms of the links between movement and narrow and wide focus is that are they links that you've made yeah yeah it's so interesting i think um there's a there's a, a number of things at play and and this isn't this is sort of a newer area of of exploration for me mm. but certainly the idea of a of a narrow focus of attention versus a wide focus of attention yes. um, and the effect that that has on our our sense of um, autonomic arousal or activation so yes, typically yes. when we're strongly focused we are a little bit more activated when we're narrowly focused on one thing and we tend to be a little bit less activated. And this can be measured. This isn't sort of just a, an entirely subjective thing. This is this can be measured objectively that our activation will, will go down. So we'll be in a little bit more of a parasympathetic state when our focus is broader, which kind of makes sense from a, you know, hunter-gatherer standpoint. You would, you know, that, that we're meant to be just kind of, um, our focus is, is broad, when we're in a relaxed state, and this allows us to see movement in the periphery. So if we suddenly mm. are under threat, we're able to see that movement. And then the more um, focused vision, or foveal vision it's called, enables us to, um, to you know, deal with a threat or to meet some sort of goal. So so maybe, maybe we notice some prey, so a source of food comes into the periphery, and then we're able to kind of mobilize and mm. and get dinner. So I think that's really, really interesting um, because I think a lot of musicians get locked into this kind of tunnel vision Yes. when they're playing and their arousal goes up and up and up, their sense of anxiety, and then the thinking also becomes kind of, um, gets into this kind of loop, anxiety loop sort of mm. thing. Um, and it's funny, I think we, we sometimes, we think, we talk about tunnel vision kind of metaphorically too in music sometimes where we 
we we talk about it in a way that it's like it's as though we're thinking that there's only this one thing right in front of us but i think it's it's actually often quite literal <laughs> that our mm. our vision is actually locked up so mm. we can see only what's in front of us um and so just broadening out the visual system can be really really helpful um but it's it's also interesting because it requires quite a bit of self trust too so i think there's this there's this yes, sense yes. where the only way we're going to be able to control what we're doing is if we have this locked focus on the notes in front of us. And um, so I think loosening up on that needs to be a little bit of a process for a lot of musicians in order to be able to feel safe and secure doing oh, yeah. that. Oh, gosh, that's that's. <laughs> Dozens of things. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I noticed that you'd said something similar on, on a Facebook post, and uh, I recommended a, a book um, called The Open Focus Brain by Les yeah. Benny. Um, and uh, I don't know if you had a chance to look at that, but when I uh, was discovering the exact same stuff that, that you're talking about to do with narrow and wide focus and that I was immediately teaching all my students. Uh, in fact, one of, one of the guests on your show, uh, let me look quickly at my notes. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Vanessa Mulvey. Yeah. She, she would, yeah. Everything she was describing about what she did was like, that's, that's immediately what I started doing with all my students. I had yeah. them observing everything in their peripheral vision. I, had, I, I actually um, forced them to, <laughs> uh, to look at the page and just to focus on the dot, then focus on the thing around it, focus on the whole page, focus in the room, focus on planet Earth, <laughs> right. you know, just <laughs> yeah. and, and pull themselves out of that. And, and, I, and it just makes such profound differences. Uh, anyway, so, so I came across this, this book because at the time it was the only thing that I could yeah. find anywhere with anyone who was talking about this. Yeah. And his findings were that um, he came across these ideas because he used to do neurofeedback where you, hmm. um, you basically measure your brain waves. And he was discovering that, that narrow, uh, and it's a bit of an oversimplification, but basically this narrow tight focus, uh, it combines with, um, it, it basically correlates with a, a very fast brainwave pattern that, that is a, like a high beta brainwave pattern. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then as you practice going to a broader, wider sort of awareness, you get into alpha brainwave states. So mm. I bought myself a, um, um, uh, a brainwave uh, neurofeedback uh, headband and started pr uh, using that. And that was really, really interesting. Oh, uh, so and I'll cool. come to that in a minute, actually, because that touches on something else that you were uh, talking about in one of your other podcasts. I feel like this could go on for, for days. <laughs> <laughs> but but, but uh, in his book, uh, and, and by the way, he, he also has released CDs of meditations. And these meditations are, are really powerful where, where he explores specifically how to sort of bring yourself out of uh, not just narrow focus, but into a sort of focus where you're aware of the spaces in between things, which is sort of mm. subtly different from, yeah. from just going wider. Now, now, what he's sort of talking about in his book, he was describing all the same kind of stuff that, that um, if you are hunting or you're prey and you're in fight or flight, you go into narrow focus and, uh, and it is tied in with the autonomic nervous system. Um, what another interesting thing that, that sort of been looking into is that I think, um, and, and there's been, uh, you know, reasonable amounts of um, academic stuff written about this. In the West, and this is a massive overgeneralization, but, but, <laughs> but this is kind of documented to a degree. Yeah. In the West, we are cultured to look at objects 
and not the relationships in between the objects and the wider picture. And in mm. Eastern cultures, uh, traditionally, um, they are much used to not looking for the objects, but looking for how everything relates to everything else in the context and the meaning. Um, that's obviously got massive implications for music. And uh, yeah. dare I put it out there, which is why there's a lot of Asian musicians, dare I put that out there? I, I don't know. But, but I certainly think that, you know, when certainly uh, um, people are learning over the age of nine and culture is really starting to take root and sort of going, right, if you want to be good at something, you have to be object focused. Now, I think that in music, the objects are notes and people become like obsessed with notes rather than the phrases, rather than the sound, rather than the feeling. Um, so, so getting yourself not only into a, a wider focus, and uh, I was looking at some research, again, this is going to all go in the show notes. So I was looking at some research recently on the different kind of uh, circuits in the brain. And there actually is a circuit in the brain for being object focused, and then for being sort of more focused on the spaces and the relationships in between objects. And mm. I think as musicians, we need to practice as much as possible that sort of ability to be um, aware of space and, and relationship. And, and there's so many quotes that say that music is about the space in between the notes, uh, yeah. the spaces in between the notes. So uh, yeah, the, this stuff gets you know really profound. And, and then I found that, that practicing with the, the headband uh, then gets this on a much deeper level of really being able to tune into all, all of the, the spaces and stuff. Anyway, sorry, I just wanted to, to yeah. uh, uh, go into some of uh, uh, that stuff. Um, yeah. And it was so exciting when I see other people who are looking at this because it's, you know, even in meditation, and I've, I've spent, you know, many years doing meditation, being interested in meditation uh, teachers and different um, stuff like that. And even in the world of meditation, not many meditation techniques ever talk about narrow and wide focus yeah so it's it's yeah. so fascinating to meet someone else or, or other people who, who have who've seen this yeah it's interesting and it, certainly my training in meditation was yeah really it, it really there was a huge focus on the body and also on on connecting with the environment and so not getting so lost mm. on our internal experience but this strikes me as being kind of related also in some way to perfectionism. So uh, yes. we, you know, I, I've always felt that there's there's kind of a focus in classical music on, you know, we, we decide on our interpretation of a piece of music and then we, you know, we work really hard so that our, we have the technique to realize this interpretation. And, and I'm so pleased you brought that up because I absolutely wanted to go there. <laughs> yeah, so so it's this idea that we want things to to go a certain way every time and that's what a successful performance is going to be that it's going to go the way we planned and and you know, I I think that this is it's it can be so helpful for musicians to be a little bit more open and contingent in the way that they approach the whole issue of interpretation for longer in the process. So rather than deciding, you know, this is the way I want the music to go, is maybe just say, this is this is one way this could go. This phrase could go like this, or this, you know, this could be the climax of yes. this section of the piece, or, or whatever, you know, and this, this has, um, I got a lot of these ideas from Ellen Langer. She's a 
educational oh, psychologist yes. At, yes. at Harvard. Yeah, really, really fascinating work. And she's done. She ha- she has her her research is on mindfulness, but she defines mindfulness um, a little bit differently than we would often see it in Buddhist or meditation contexts. But but a, a big part of it is is staying open as long as possible to new possibilities, to always be open to new possibilities. And so, yeah, this strikes me as being, um, you know, we were, we well, I'll try to tie it back into what we were talking about with vision, but we can often get oh, sort no, of no, I'm quite locked happy to in take visually on a, on a target. But, but it's also sort of attitudinally, we can kind of get locked in on a very rigid yeah. um, and fairly narrow set of expectations about how we want things to go. And um, mm. I don't know how much I don't know how much that serves us or the audience. I feel like one of the things that can be that's so beautiful about sharing in a live performance experience as an as a performer and an and an audience is is there should be an element of co creation. I think ideally mm. that mm. that what's happening in that moment could only happen in that moment. Um, so we need to be really, really prepared, absolutely, as performers. But I think partly what we need to be prepared for is to respond to what that particular set of conditions offers us. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Uh, again, we could just write encyclopedias <laughs> of books about just all of that. <laughs> I know. I love um, talking about this stuff. <laughs> um, uh, where, where do I? OK, th- this is my uh, route into all of that stuff. Um, okay. I think maybe, you know, in, in some ways, um, yeah, you and me sort of very interesting because when you described your, your sort of your roots as a classical musician, my, my route in, uh, although I feel like we've sort of arrived at, at a quite a similar place, as a youngster, I, with music, I don't think I had any need for external approval. Um, mm. I, I just did, I just did it because it sounded good, and and I, uh, I never really had any problems with nerves. I picked music up very, very quickly, very naturally. Never sort of thought about it much, but actually, a lot of. Um, a lot of I, I feel that that what made me the the musician that I am is that that when I was quite young, even I, I'm trying to think back, and even maybe as young as sort of age ten or something like that, I was lazy, <laughs> and and, uh, <laughs> and and all the time I was thinking, how can I play really really well with the minimum amount of time sat at the piano, with the minimum right. ma- amount of time doing anything, and then play really difficult things very very well, and so I kind of realised. Uh, that the answer to that at that age is to is to basically be aware of what my attention was doing um, because if you can be aware of your attention and your psychology and your focus you can learn things very very efficiently without sitting at the piano for a long amount of time and then you can perform where even though you feel nervous you can perform having just about done the minimum amount of work <laughs> and not let any of the nerves affect you <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> and and um and I think in recent years it's like, oh, here's all these interesting tools that I, I now have ways of describing what I've been doing all that time. Yeah. Um but but actually on, on the other hand as well, uh with classical music, what I have learned over the years and uh and um yeah, yeah, I won't talk about it too much at the moment, but really classical music, I think that that what I love about classical music is the search for perfection. But but there's a particular kind of nuance to this, that, that it's not the perfection of one 
perfect way of playing it. Um, that that for, for me, and, and when you look, I think, at all the great, all the great classical performers, the greater they are, the more unique every performance is, even when they're playing the same piece. So mm. perfection to me is, is not static. It's really about refinement. It's about, it's about developing your ear to such a level that you notice like very, very fine nuances. And when I think of perfection, I'm thinking of very, very refined nuance, but spontaneous. Um, yeah. So, but, but, but I, you had sort of dangled that, that issue of, of perfection and classical music, and I had kind of wanted to, to go there a little bit. Um, one thing that, that was interesting when I got the, the, this headband to do neurofeedback was that I realized that, that all my life when I'd been meditating on my breath, and when you're guided to focus on your breath, I mean, I focused on my breath, I focused. And then I realized that, that to get like, okay, so with this headband, you have birds that chirp when you have um, what it recommends as being the right sort of brainwave state. Uh-huh. And I realized that, that focus didn't do it. What, what did it was a sense of absolute non-effort, of, of hmm. absolute open, uh, an open focus. It was, it was just sort of a wide, actually letting go of the focus and not only letting go of the focus, but letting go of the intention to do anything it's letting go of the trying to try to do anything yeah. and and in many ways that's something that that actually has to be practiced because we all have this striving need to do and to, to you know even when we sit down and, and meditate there's like a, a purpose and a, and a striving if we're not careful and I, I found it absolutely fascinating that um, to enter this new state that felt like I'd been on a holiday by the beach for weeks mm. uh, when I'd been meditating in this way. And, uh, and then I went on a, a, a meditation retreat by this um, uh, organization called uh, Tree Ratna. And uh, the, um, the retreat, and you'll see where I'm going in a minute with this, the, the retreat was called Just Sit. And, mm. um, and I went to this retreat and normally I'm, I'm quite a strivey person who likes learning new, new things. And I got to the, this retreat and when they said, when they tell, sort of said what just it means, I was like, oh my God, maybe this, <laughs> what, uh, this it feels really out of my comfort zone to actually come to a retreat where the point of the retreat is actually to not do anything, to let go of all of your techniques and to... With, I mean, yeah, it's not quite like that because you've still got to be skillful. You've still got to use your other meditation techniques so you're not just daydreaming and drifting off. But, but you know, the aim of this one is to let go of the striving and, and literally just sit and just be and not even try to meditate. And so when I heard you discussing with one of your guests that, that you had been doing something that was uh, just sitting in the Zen tradition, I was yeah. like, ooh, what's that? Can, can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that? Yeah, um, yeah. My, I, I, I studied meditation with a, a, a Canadian teacher who unfortunately died a couple of years ago. Um, but his name was Michael Stone, and he his his sort of path as a meditator was interesting in that he started in, in the Vipassana tradition, and then kind of um, took up more of a Zen influenced practice. And so the way he taught, and this really, really worked for me, is there was this um, strong emphasis towards the beginning on 
on being able to stabilize the attention by focusing on some sort of object, um, which, which, you know, could be the breath, but we also would explore sound and sensation and other things. And that's a whole other can of worms, um, finding a, a good, a good anchor. But, you know, but that once you're t- attention starts to stabilize a little bit that you can sort of let go of the technique and be in this more open um in this more open awareness and this more sort of responsive awareness so that rather than you know when when you're focusing on an object when the goal is to focus on an object this this like i say can be really really helpful for stabilizing your attention and just becoming aware of of the movement of your attention. So having that object orientation can be really, really helpful because it gives you a point of reference. But but then it, it automatically sets up this um, sort of dualism as well so that you're either focused or not. And it can create a, a bit of a sense that, you know, any any moment that your attention is on on the object, you're, you know, quote unquote, doing well, <laughs> you're getting your meditation gold stone if, if your attention moves off that object. So this can, um, th- th- then that's a problem. So if, you, so if your attention moves off the object that this is, this is, you know, now it's a bad meditation. And this can be, uh, you know, I think this can really reinforce sort of habits of striving and perfectionism in people. And can cause us to kind of separate from our experience because it it creates a situation where then the only kind of the only experience you're going to count as good experience is the is the moments that you were focused on your object. And so I feel like this more open awareness, this just sitting approach, the 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 point of it is to really open to the totality of your experience mm. so that your you're willing to be friends with anything that comes into your experience in the moment mm. um, rather than than having you know if we if our attention slips away from our breath say that then we start having this um, sort of maybe a negative feeling toward ourselves or we get this uh, the grasping for the experience of being really focused on our breath mm. that we can be a little bit more gentle and um, allowing of experience to kind of unfold as it's going to unfold in the moment but it's also helpful for there to be some sort of boundary on that (laughs) so that's why you know what i mean it's not just sort of sitting and like oh well i just thought about my lunch the whole time you know Mm. so it's 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 a really delicate balance of of finding a way to kind of put some sort of boundary or container on the experience but without Mm. being so rigid that you reinforce habits of of perfectionism and having preferences for this versus that um, all these kind of these mental habits mm. that many of us come to meditation because we want to get rid of them <laughs> and then we end up just reinforcing them through our meditation practice if, if that makes yeah. sense well maybe you've had some quite harsh meditation teachers in in sort of the more traditional sense because uh, you know I, uh, for me I, I always sort of very much focused on if you're doing a a meditation where you are focusing on your breath and you are really trying to keep your attention on your breath. I always understood that the, the purpose of that is not just to keep your focus on your breath, but how skillfully you can accept 
all the things that distract you, allow them to be there and have compassion for yourself. And for me, that has always been just as important as, as sort of whether or not you can keep your focus on the object. And, and so maybe you, you've had a, a teacher who's really emphasized the, the keeping your attention on the object rather than the, the compassion and the allowing of all the things that take you away as well. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. I would say that my experience has been has been close to yours as well. That definitely, okay. the 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 expectation has been, um, and the instruction that I've always received has not been if your attention wanders away. It's always been when your attention yeah, wanders yeah. away. Mm-hmm, that there mm-hmm. is this definitely this expectation that our attention will sort of ebb and flow, mm. um, and that we bring kindness to that, and that noticing that your attention has wandered. Yeah. Um, you know, is is as much of a win as yes. not having your attention wander in the first place. Yeah, so I, I want to be clear about yeah, that. Okay, I've never, sure, sure, I sure. haven't had any any mean, any mean <laughs> meditation okay, teachers. Sure, but I, sure. um, yeah, no, but I just I I think this. Um, yeah, and I and I and I don't want want to make it sound like I don't think there's um, sitting and focusing on an object isn't really really valuable. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's been many studies on this that show that they, they have different benefits. And so it's probably worth doing both. But uh, I'm going to try and pull this back to, <clears throat> yeah. back to classical yeah. music. So, yeah. so, I went, so I did this retreat, had profound, like really profound, just being, non-striving. Because I think like, like, you were, like you were saying, there's something very different about meditating when you are um, just allowing everything and, and not even trying to focus on one thing and you're just allowing. It's, it's a very, very different experience. And, 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 uh, and I felt very, very profound sort of realizations and states of letting go of the need to do and be and uh, certain things. Anyway, I got home and suddenly I could play pieces that are right at the top of you know difficulty levels in the entire repertoire and I could just play them easily and effortlessly and I was like oh my god and I've always been fairly relaxed and and sort of easy you know my the, my technique um I've never sort of consciously worked on technique a lot I uh, but it comes from relaxation and it comes from bodily awareness and 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 it comes from constantly experimenting and moving and seeing how can I be relaxed and move to to make all these things anyway so I got back home and suddenly oh my god I I, it was just like profound how much better my music was as a result of this uh uh, and um, especially classical and I think Mm -hmm. that you know classical music as a genre it's full of paradoxes because when you sit down and practice I think in many ways you have to have a perfectionist mindset to be a classical musician. I don't think any musician can become a classical musician without any sense of perfectionism. But you also, I think, have to practice in every time that you sit down and you're practicing, you have to practice then letting all that go. Um, And that's really, that's something that I've always tried to teach my students, how to flick that switch. Um, Have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really love the idea of just holding holding our expectations or our, our wishes for what we want the music to be and, and what we want to communicate to to hold it lightly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's absolutely, there's something just incredibly beautiful about 
aspiring to create and communicate and share something of great beauty. Mm. Um, you know, I don't think we want to get rid of that. No way. But it's when we start, um, when when we're really harsh with ourselves, when our the results don't for whatever reason, and there can be many, many reasons why in a given moment things don't, mm. they don't, it doesn't go the way we had hoped. Yeah, that, that we, we do show ourselves some kindness, but, but mm. also be um, really accountable to ourselves. You know, I think, I think that, you know, we do have to work really, really hard to make something beautiful. Mm. And um, yeah, so I, I do find this. Uh, so I guess it's all just a long winded way of saying no, I don't really have an answer to that. <laughs> okay. But, but yeah. I just I find this, this exploration and, and this, because to me, these are the these are are some of the energies that are at the heart of what it means to be human is this desire to to be close to beauty and to create mm. beauty and to be to be ashamed or be disappointed when we fall short of our own expectations and mm. so this darkness and this light these are um these are all just part of what it means to be human so um I think it's I mean personally I th I guess in my own life I'm less interested in having sort of an answer or a, a method or a strategy is just sort of having some sort of wherewithal to really engage in that dance oh, in a yeah. really deep way. Yeah. Well I mean one of the the reasons I really wanted you on the podcast um I think at the moment I'm asking a lot of questions and I don't have yeah. definitive answers. And when I hear you talk about a lot of these things, I think, oh, let's talk about some of these. <laughs> not, <laughs> not necessarily to have the answers, but, yeah, but just yeah. to, to go into a bit of depth. Yeah. And um, I think one, one of the things that, that I'm particularly sort of reflecting a lot on at the moment, um, I'm, I'm looking at, at Buddhism and, and I'm saying that very tentatively because I don't want to scare off uh, some of the listeners or prospective students or, or whatever who, who might be scared by religion. But, you know, I've been thinking about the, the four pillars of, of Buddhism, which basically says in a nutshell that, that suffering comes from grasping onto things. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I think as a, as a classical musician, you have to work really, really hard. You spend a lot of time, you, you spend ages investing, really investing heavily in a piece of music, and then you perform it. And the more you grasp onto the, that sense of attachment of what you've invested into that piece and what you want the outcome to be, the more it, it won't happen. Uh, and, 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 you know, and it's really interesting to watch this. Uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by high level competitions. And uh, I went to a, a, a piano competition uh, not too long ago. And it was really interesting to see the, the very good performers who started to get that sense of, of grasping that they really wanted it to go well. And it became more about the sense of grasping than about the music. And they just kind of crashed and burned really. And, and uh, that is so hard to do for anything that you work hard at and then to hold it yeah. lightly and let it go. Do you have uh, thoughts on that? Or do, is that something you practice as part of preparing for a performance? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think it it's really really hard to do it in the moment of performance if we don't practice it. Mm. Um, when the pressure's on, um, 
yeah, it's it's hard to do things that really <laughs> that really um deeply sort of call on our on our resource as a as a human in a pressure situation if we don't practice them. But the way that I practice that is kind of like what I was talking about before is that I try to be much more really open to discovering new possibilities in the music. Yeah. Um and I and I actually will practice playing things deliberately the way I, you know, a way that I would probably never play it in performance. So really stylistically, kind of wacky. Um, mm. And and often then I'll discover something. I'll be like, oh, I actually kind of liked that, you know, this one measure when it was, you know, in this other style. But yeah, I find that that is a really is a is a helpful practice is is to just practice, yeah being really open to new possibilities all the way through the process. Um, and also I find it also it, it helpful to be, this is a little bit more sort of just like an organizational principle in practice is, is I find it helpful to try not to go too far down the rabbit hole of needing to perfect things in a given practice session that, so I sort of set an amount of time that I'm going to work on something and, I will often set a timer and when the time is up, I move on. Mm. Or I often will, if I get a little bit of an improvement or a little bit of even just a clear understanding of where I want to go, I really feel great about that. I take a moment to really feel excited that I have a clear idea of where I want to go. And then I, I often will just really move on because... I find that when I get that little bit of insight or that little bit of improvement and then I, I want more and more and more, for me, and again, I don't want to be really prescriptive because we're all really different, but for me, it's often more effective if I let that go and come back to it the next day um, yeah. because I find going, you know, trying to trying to make it better and better and better often will feed that kind of grasping um, yeah. frame of mind in myself. That's interesting. And, and also presumably the narrow focus. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Mm. Yeah, and it, yeah. and then it just tends to mean that I don't move on, you know, that I'm just yeah, that yeah. I I get all excited about this one thing. Um and you know, sometimes that can be really good. I'm not I'm not saying I never do that, but I just mm. I try to be mm. really sensitive to kind of what is the like what's kind of the feeling tone yeah. um behind what I'm doing and if it starts to be feeling kind of greedy and graspy, then I I often will think, okay, it's time to it's time to move on. Oh, I, I like that so much, the, the feeling tone behind everything. Yeah, I like that so much. Um, I want to come back to, oh, as always, so many things. And uh, <laughs> uh, so, so what you were saying just before reminds me of what you've been talking about quite a few times in your podcast about beginner's mind. Mm -hmm. And I think beginner's mind is just such a massively underrated concept when it comes to everybody at every level whether you're a beginner and I think a lot of beginners uh, the, the sort of classic mistakes that beginners fall into where they try to play too quickly too impatiently uh, to uh, all that stuff it, it comes from feeling uncomfortable being a beginner I think mm -hmm. um, and then for uh, people who right up to the other end I think that when I'm playing at my best, and this is sort of, again, what you were describing about how do you get out of that, that sort of sense of um, perfection and stuff, it's, it's, um, it's not about playing well. It's about having a beginner's mind and, and discovering 
the, the music as if it's brand new and and constantly learning and it's a it's a very profound state i think yeah um, yeah it, is that something that that you perhaps consciously practice that sort of sense of beginner's mind when you practice or perform i do yeah and i also um i really like learning new things i just like mm. um I just like learning new things. And so I I find that practicing it in domains other than music is also really, really helpful to be in that really sort of confused, unclear state and like actually not just practicing beginner's mind in something that I'm already pretty good at, mm. uh, which is super helpful, but I find actually also being a beginner um, – is just kind of a cool place to be. Yeah. Yeah. Adults, I think a lot of adults find that terrifying. The, yeah. the sort of being a beginner. Um, I, I was doing salsa dancing for a while and, uh, uh, and, and I realized that I was falling into all the same sort of things that all my students were falling into. I was telling yeah. myself I was just inherently bad at it. I was narrow focusing on everything. I was like, and then when I started doing all this kind of teaching, I started applying all this sort of stuff to, to my salsa dancing. And, and suddenly, you know, the teachers would be going, yeah, you nailed that bit, which, which I'd never <laughs> heard before. And <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but actually, that leads us nicely back, I think, to, to movement. Um, yeah. Um, something that uh, bothers me with with a lot of my students is when they are rigid and don't move and and uh, um, the the format that a lot of my podcasts take is that I do it with a a friend of mine who yeah. who um, I now teach piano to yeah. and um, when I asked him quite near the beginning of the podcast what's the number one thing that that I've taught you that you think has made the most difference to your playing uh, the thing that he said like really surprised me he said it was making me move. And that's what mm. he said. So um, what are your strategies in, in terms of movement? And, and, and I think you've studied sort of different kinds of um, movement um, modalities, techniques, that, that, those kinds of things. Yeah. And um, yeah, t- tell us a little bit about how you incorporate movement into your teaching. Yeah, I think it's so important. Um, so I, I, I deal with movement in a bunch of different ways. So I, I first of all, I... I, I agree with you that it's often one of the most important things. Mm. And I just think movement is a way of getting people to feel that they have a body. Mm. And I think oftentimes, un- unless they're asked to move, modern humans kind of forget, we, we forget that we have a body. Um, because we don't really need to use it that much. And, and when we play a musical instrument, especially, you know, I teach at university, so it's it's at a pretty high level. Mm that it can become quite kind of mechanical and unconscious. You know, we make the same sort of repetitive movements again and again, and, and we can be oddly detached from the physical physical aspect of music making and really focus a lot on the mental effort and the mental discipline of music making. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I it, at the school where I teach, I... I incorporate a lot of movement activities actually in the classes that I teach. So I teach some classroom courses and we do a lot of movement activities, often games. We sort of bounce balls and we do different balance games and, and things like this just to sort of get people, um, just to, so that people can start to notice what their learning is like mm. when their body is also active. But I also teach a couple of movement classes every week here at the School of Music. So anyone in the 
at the school can come for free. And they're kind of a mix of like, you know, yoga and corrective exercise and games, a lot of playful types of movements Mm -hmm. um, to help musicians feel their bodies more. But we do also a lot of specific work on areas of the body where musicians can use a little bit of a little bit of extra strength or mobility or awareness and things like this. Mm -hmm. Um, And in my own teaching privately, it really varies on the student how I use music, uh, sorry, how I use movement in my in my lesson teaching. Mm. Um, I do talk a lot about specific muscles and the engagement of specific muscles and muscle groups in order to create efficient movement on the instrument. But I know quite a, a lot of anatomy. Like I think that can be sort of dangerous to get into that if you don't, if you don't have a a good um, grounding in anatomy and, and biomechanics. Yes. Um, yeah. So so it really it it really depends. Um, forgive me for asking this because yeah, um, I don't think I've seen many solo tuba players. So for, yeah. forgive me for my ignorance. <laughs> no. Do no. you can you can you move a lot expressively as you play, or is it quite yeah. a heavy instrument? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question because um, you can. Um, I've always been a big mover when I play, but the more I am able to use my body efficiently and, and get tension in my body where it's going to be helpful and get rid of tension where it's not going to be helpful, mm-hmm. um, I find that I'm moving a lot less so it's right. like I'm my my body is this much much more efficient transmitter of of energy and movement. Um, I think in the past I've I've had a lot of wasted movement, so it's like I've I I've been a bit stymied in terms of how to to get the movement into the music. Like I've wanted the the music to feel a certain way, and I've had some sort of blockages in my body in terms of in terms of the movement that I've needed for breathing, for example. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I find it's interesting that as my, I think my playing is actually more expressive, but my movement is maybe a little bit less expressive. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I think there's all kinds of studies that have shown that when non-musicians are watching musicians, all their perception of expression comes from movement rather than from the music <laughs> itself. So yeah. this is something that, that I'm asking myself a lot at the, at the moment as, uh, as well, because I'm experimenting yeah. with more efficient movement. And do I actually want to move expressively when I can just put that straight into the sound? But, yeah. but I, I'm asking myself, what, yeah, you know, they're, they're all interesting kind of questions, you know, uh, whether or not... Um, that has a cost with non-musicians in the audience. And I think that would be a really interesting study uh, at some yeah. point. Because, um, but yeah, yeah. So do you have students who are very stiff and don't move a lot? Um, yeah. Uh, right. So, so what do you do with those? <laughs> yeah, it's, um, um, again, it really depends on the student. Because I want them to feel comfortable, Mm. I think is really, really important. So even if some sort of movement protocol might, I really think it might be helpful if it's going to send that student, if it's going to make that student so uncomfortable um, that it creates 
tension and anxiety in a different area, then mm. I'm going to be I'm going to be careful about that. Mm. But yeah, so a, a lot of uh, again with a lot of my students, we I I work to if they're stiff and unmoving, we work on I mean, a lot of times people are stiff and unmoving because they don't have really good internal support. So like the deep muscles of the spine and the deep core in a sedentary culture, those those muscles kind of go to sleep. And so when if we want to be a little bit more free or kind of look a little bit more free, um, we actually need to work on stabilizing deep inside the body. Um, and deep around the joints, like the hip and the shoulder, um, mm. and then again, the spine and the core, we need to have some stability there so that the muscles that are a little bit um, more superficial, so a little bit closer to the outside of the body and that are responsible for moving rather than stabilizing, are able to be a little bit more free. Does does that make sense? That does, that does. And I'm imagining this is especially important with a giant instrument like a tuba. Yeah. Yeah, or trombone. You know, I teach trombone. Yeah, so yeah. trombone is mm-hmm. place standing. But the instrument's quite heavy and it's it it requires quite a lot of um like very dramatic movements. Like the slide goes a long way. There's there's a big movement associated with that. So it's really, really important to have really strong stabilization through the deep core and through the hips and around the shoulders deep in the shoulders but then this there needs to be this fluidity and openness and softness um, through other parts of the shoulder and the arm and the chest the thoracic cavity for the breathing so um, yeah a lot of the work that I do in lessons is just about is really individual and trying to find um, that source of internal support and then noticing how as that internal support comes online a little bit more reliably, we can maybe work a little bit less hard Yeah. in some other areas, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 that, that makes sense, yeah. But, but if you were to come to one of my movement classes, it would be completely different. So we wouldn't be so specific about, you know, engaging this and, and you know, releasing something else. We would often just do like kind of crazy playful movement situations just so people get the sense so this is sort of going back to the external focus we do a lot of task-based movement where then people just they they're able to experience themselves moving in a more fluid way which i think can be really helpful um one more question uh it's yeah. probably quite quite a big one okay um I think, I, <laughs> well, except we don't have to answer it i mean it's it's potentially big but we don't have to give okay. it a big answer yeah. anyway i've been i've been thinking a lot recently about how i think good musicians just sort of take it for granted that we express music from our hearts in quite a deep way that's sort of quite difficult to to express in words um, do you have any particular ways of nurturing that ability to to tune into what is going on in terms of what you're feeling sort of deep in your heart and put that into music? What, have you, what are your thoughts on that? Hmm. <laughs> I told you it was a big one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really, really interesting question. Um, yeah, I mean... Again, so much of it depends on the student. And yeah, so so I think 
many students are not necessarily comfortable engaging in in that conversation directly. Mm. I think a lot of times people aren't in touch with their own heart and their own reasons for making music. And it can be kind of confronting to, you know, you're in a, I have my office here, like there's no window. It's fairly small. <laughs> so you come into this mm. office with this crazy woman saying, you know, tell me about <laughs> your heart, you know? Like I, so I, I just, I'm always, I'm always, um, and, and I don't know if this is the right way or the wrong way to go about it, but I'm always, you know, mindful that I, I want my students to feel comfortable and that I'm meeting them where they are. So, you know, some some people really want to get into that conversation. But I do think a lot of the way that we transmit that as teachers or create a situation where that is a that's safe to explore in whatever way is is going to be appropriate for that student at that time. Okay. Uh-huh. Is is through being really um, honest and open about our own experiences as musicians mm. and mm-hmm. sharing honestly about our own challenges and our own deepest motivations for making music, I think um, I think are really important. And then also just you know trying as a as a teacher to create an environment where, Lots and lots of different types of exploration are valuable. And, you know, so I have a, I have students, I've had many students over the years who playing their instrument, you know, they, they're, when they come to the music program here, they take lessons all the way through their degree program, but many of them aren't that interested in playing. But some of them get really interested, for example, in composition. And so what I see is that 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 becomes a really, really important way that they're getting in touch with their their deepest um, feelings about music and creativity and all these things. Um, mm. So, yeah, this is this is I feel this is a a poor <laughs> answer, but <laughs> but it just is. It really is so individual and often not head on. I mean, I really feel like the longer I teach, I feel like the deeper the questions, the deeper the issues, the less directly I approach them. Uh, mm. Anyway, yes, I'm, I'm uh, aware that we've gone over time and uh, thank you so much for, for your time. And it was really lovely to, to talk to you and explore all these sort of really fascinating topics. And, and I'm just so happy that there are other people out there who, who are in similar territory. And yeah. uh, uh, it sounds like you're doing amazing stuff at a very high level. And, and thank you so much for your podcast and, and choosing such fantastic guests as well. Oh, yeah. Um, well, thank you for, for inviting me on as well. This has just been such a treat to be on the other side of it. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Well, like I said in our correspondence, it was kind of a shame that I, I wanted to do a proper interview with you, but you beat me to it and had a student actually interview you first. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, that, that, thank you so much, and especially because I know you've been so busy recently. So thanks very much. Thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure. So thanks for tuning into this episode of the Heart of the Piano podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, if you're enjoying the podcast, please do, if possible, 
get on iTunes and subscribe and comment and rate it and this helps other people to discover the podcast if you don't like iTunes and Apple and all that stuff then please do subscribe uh, using your platform of choice do leave comments um, if not on iTunes then uh, on heartofthepiano.com there are always show notes and I'm going to be putting show notes in with this one so thank you very much for listening so see you the next time bye Thank <laughs> you.